sometimes it's not just about the representation, but about the way in which the representation does something to you. But I think there's many, many kind of, of psychedelic experiences that seem to be playing a uh, trick with scale. Hi, I'm Josh DiCaglio. I'm an assistant professor at Texas A&M, and I'm here to talk about my recent book, Scale Theory, uh, a non-disciplinary inquiry, which came out with the University of Minnesota Press in 2021. And I'm honored today to be joined by Dorian Sagan, uh, who has long been an important intellectual figure for mine. Hello, and thank you for having me. I look forward to our discussion. Thank you. Thank you. To give an overview of this book attempts to try to lay out the basic theoretical parameters for scale across a great variety of disciplines. It is focused by what I consider this like central provocation. How is it possible that I, yes, I or you are made up simultaneously of cells, atoms, pieces of ecological uh, web, parts of a thermodynamic dispersal of the sun, elements in the gravitational world of galaxies, all of these things simultaneously right now are descriptions of also what you are experiencing. This kind of schema of scale in which we describe these different layers of objects is incredibly bewildering and not so easy to understand both in terms of how we got to it and what its implications are. Even though we're describing and using uh, scalar objects all the time, whether we're talking about DNA or the cells in your body or toxic molecules or environmental effects, whether we're talking about viruses and pandemics, these are all objects that exist at scales that we don't usually experience with the normal homo sapien human body. All right, Dorian. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to, to, to read the book. No, thank you. I, I, I thought it was a, a great of uh, mine. You did so much reading and it's, I, I mean, I can't say it was, I understood everything in it, but there was a lot of stuff that you, you tried to phagocytose and, um, and it's, it's pretty cool. A lot of topics I'm interested in and some of it was, over, I'm not really good at like the typological thing and like following directions as far as the thought experiments go and stuff. I tried, but um, I, th I thought there's some great references in there. I'm not entirely certain that I understand everything I wrote either. No, and I, yeah, and that's probably typical for people who are writing about interesting things too. Yeah. Part of the method is to say like, well, like here is this idea scale that we don't quite fully understand. And rather than pretend that I'm going to understand it, I'm going to try to write a book that's going to help us sort of see the contours of it and the, the confusion that it throws us into so that we can try to understand it a little bit more. Having to review a book, it actually forces you to read it, like the whole thing. And that can be a good thing, too. And if, especially sometimes when it's a little bit outside your comfort zone, you know, it makes your brain grow a little bit. You really did that for me from the time I was an undergraduate. Uh, as I was reading, it was actually Dazzle Gradually was the first book that I got from yours. I was in a literature and science course and that came in. It was so unusual, right? We, were re we read it ab amongst a bunch of novels about science. It was at University of South Carolina. Yeah, Laura Walls, who's now elsewhere, taught a literature and science course. And I think it was shortly after Dazzle Gradually came out. And I was just completely excited by your ability to take, you know, basic ideas related to science, but also philosophical questions, bring them together, and then write it in a way that actually does it to you. Right? <laughs> and this is kind of the thing that I refused to give up for scale mm -hmm. theory was that I didn't mm -hmm. want to just think about scale. I wanted to have scale do something to me <laughs> and then help the reader like do it also, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The basic premise here, like the switch that I've been trying to use as kind of an introduction to the book is to say, we usually talk about scale uh, and scalar objects with too much assumed already, right? We start talking about cells. We start talking about, you know, the, the size of the sun or the laws of thermodynamics or quantum objects or the Big Bang, right? These are all objects that require scale, right? These require these shifts in size. And somehow we're like relating those really big objects or those really small objects. We were saying they exist, right? We're not saying they don't exist, right? And yet they bear some kind of unclear relationship to what we're experiencing right now. And so the basic mm -hmm. maneuver that I keep coming back to that I, mm -hmm. as I was writing this mm -hmm. was how is that actually a description of what is happening right now? Mm -hmm. When we're talking about cells, we're talking about your body, about something that's going on in your body in a way of describing how mm -hmm. your body is able to fit itself together and do stuff, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And that it seems to me is completely befuddling, right? Or bewildering. And yet 
in our kind of everyday conversation or even in our more rigorous conversations, we just talk about these objects as if they're like really clear. You know, I mean, it's something that we all were thinking about during the COVID pandemic, right? That somehow we've got a relationship to viruses, which are these really tiny particles that are able to invade our body. And we only actually know they're there whenever we get something like a symptom. But then for it to be a pandemic, it has to exist even on a different scale, which is the scale of the planet in order for it to traffic around. And then it requires different kind of behavior on my part. And so we're all sitting in our houses wondering what are we doing in relation to these very tiny particles that are spreading on the, the scale of the globe. It's like caught between a microcosm and a macrocosm. I'll just say, um, you know, I have like some scalar subjects. I won't say objects in my house, but I got a three-year-old <laughs> and a one-year-old. And the three-year-olds, the boy went to um, school for the first time, you know, after like daycare down across the campus. And apparently um, when he was dropped off today by on, on bicycle by his mother, they told her that he, because I had seen that they sent a, a photo, not necessarily want to give kids on, you know, without permission on the internet, but we got a photo of him painting with two hands. So we have an artistic household and stuff. And it, apparently one was Edward Monk, because he's obsessed with the scream, which I read like from an art book to him, because it's kind of a, like a little kid thing gets scared, you know, and you, you scream, you can't, you know, everybody's had that dream, I think. And so it's very, it's very redolent for him. And the other thing was because the day before, on the advice of your book, we checked out that um, inner life of a cell video. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. Right. And of course, his grandmother is the um, the biologist Lynn Margulis, who died in 2011, who he's never met, but um, he knows about her through hearing her talked about. And so I had thought, like, us, you know, he's been watching Frozen. I'm, this little, I know this is a divagation, but he's been watching <laughs> Frozen and pretending to be Elsa and all this. And, and so, but um, I said, maybe you should watch, like, Modern Times by Charlie Chaplin. I was just trying to throw something else out there. And I showed that, and he said, no, Charlie Chaplin is boring. And then he want, and then I showed him a micro video. You know, I tried, I like the live videos. He showed one of, of his grandmother, and he said, no, I don't want to see any more with Grandma Lenny. And, oh. <laughs> uh, or Grandma Lynn or whatever she said I don't want to see anymore with her I want to see the other kind and he wanted to see like the computer generated <laughs> DNA thing which I don't like but he loves them and so I just wanted to tell you that story and as far as um, Charlie Chaplin being boring because um, mom was out with like a neck thing and I was had both of them on the couch and we all fell asleep to computer generated micro videos <laughs> it was a really good sleep <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's astonishing though, right? Because w what we've done is we've started to actually give images to these things that we didn't have images for, you know, and, and I don't talk that much about, you know, there are other people who have, who have done sort of more thorough work on how we image and actually render the molecular. But the thing I'm trying to focus on is that kind of crazy transformation whereby we get from here to there. Mm -hmm. The story I'll counter with is when my kids were uh, three and five, I showed them the Powers of 10 video, right. almost like a bit of an experiment, because one of the inspirations for some of what I've written in this book was that as I was thinking about scale, I kept having conversations with people and they would point to the Powers of 10. They were very critical of it. Right. I was surprised to see that in your book, because I always thought of it as being innocuous. I mean, it, you should probably tell your um, podcastees or whatever they're called what the powers of 10 is but isn't it's a it's a classic scalar short like documentary video that goes from somebody's hand a couple like sleeping in a park and a picnic right all the way to the ends of you know cosmic space and all the way down into whatever is beneath the cells and the atoms and and people have been very critical of this for for what i think are good reasons right because of the way that it frames out the viewer it can kind of lead you to forget where you're at mm -hmm. but there's also things in it that like don't let you forget that right mm -hmm. and that's one of the arguments I'm making about scale is that if we think about what the scale is doing there, so listeners who are unfamiliar with it could go look it up, but you'll see that there's a box around it mm -hmm. with the reference to mm -hmm. the scale. To the and, next level. Know, or the next, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think the narrator is not actually very interesting in there. Right? right, but I find that in scalar videos, they like the narrators often don't know what to make of it, and so the the narration is often not actually that interesting. But the the shift in size is the thing that's crazy. And it's not just that there's a change in size, right? Like this book is not just about size. 
Okay. In fact, I, I try to avoid using the word size. Uh, we check if I actually succeeded. I don't think I did. No, you did. You wrote size matters at one point, but yes, it's yes. kind of tongue in cheek. Okay. Look at, I'll read this because this is one of my notes. Okay. On this question. Okay. And this is, it might be, this might be a little bit risque, but I'll just read it anyways. As a gadfly, I was going to ask you, and then I saw in your book, good anticipation, even if a quasi pun that size quote, matters, end quote. And I agree it does, but it seems to me that the perspective and qualia rather than quantity, this would be like a, you know, a sort of a criticism or a, another angle onto what I feel is missing in like the focus on just scale, of which scale as an example may matter more. One of the things that's troubling about the way that scale manifests, right? The way we talk about, like you have scale and, and to some extent, it's just a number, right? It just says, you know, 10 to the negative, you know, right, whatever, right. or like, or it's just one nanometer, right? There's just mm -hmm. the line there. And so it seems to be about numbers. It seems to be mm -hmm. about this kind of like numerical rigid notion of reality that is wholly objective and has nothing to do with mm -hmm. the perspectives that and the practices, especially the social practices that were required to get there, right? Which is why a lot of science studies scholars following Latour and other thinkers have critiqued scale as part of this like attempt to hide to some extent the epistemic practices of science, how we come to know about science. And of course, we want to know about how science comes to find these objects called cells or galaxies. But that number is not, I would say, as scary as it appears for those reasons. The, the number is just about consistency. It's a quantity that just lets us keep track of where our perspective is. And where is not even the right word, because that's one of the things that the people note about the Powers of 10 video is that it seems to like move us, right? Which is why we call it a, a scalar zoom. But we're not actually moving. We're changing mm -hmm. our perspective. Right. And so that number is actually essential for saying, look, the perspective that you're having right now is this large. And now I'm, now I'm uh, speaking more in terms of size. But the important thing there is that that change in quantity is a change in quality. Mm -hmm. One of the kind of interesting things about the metric system is it lets us keep track of scale in a way that ties our normal experience of the world, right, which is the meter scale is within our normal scale. It lets us keep tabs on that while also pointing to something that's outside of our, our usual way of experiencing the world. You don't usually experience the world in a way that lets you see cells or atoms or the planet or galaxies. And so that measure is there to keep track of that consistency and the thing that I think the powers of 10 does, I'm actually kind of flummoxed to think of any better way to do this. I've been trying to like find people who, who have other ways of trying to piece together what the, the kind of transformation that scale produces. A potential problem might be something I talked about under the rubric of Protagoras, the, mm -hmm, yeah. the famous statement in, in Cosmic Apprentice that man is the measure of all things, which I think usually has an inflection, at least in English, that suggests that everything is about us, kind of like a biblical self-centeredness and anthropocentrism. But another way that is interesting with regard to scalarity, if you like, is to think of that as us being the actual measure, which I think is what you actually, you do that and you call it like the one meter scale is this scale of our ordinary existence. and the potential problem with that is that we still are projecting ourselves into various other things. And if we look at their size, their distance, or other like, things we can measure, it was sort of like emptying out the qualia, for example, what are these things? You know, do they have internet? So we have internet and we experience it, otherwise we wouldn't even be able to have this conversation. But do other things. And I think, you know, I sent you that James McAllister quote about us being a way of looking at the universe, you know, that my father liked to talk about versus us being sort of a, a meta society, uh, a weird totalitarian communist like clone of eukaryotic cells of the body. And these things are alive. Absolutely. Heidegger said, you know, other animals are poor in world, but his most quoted philosopher was Jacob von Oxkoli, an Estonian ethologist who came up with the idea of the ohm world, which sort of morphed in its protagonist, if you like, human form, protagonist in the first sense, into Dasein. He said they're poor in world, but 
a lot of people disagree with that their dogs are that poor in the world. It's just a different world. Even Uxko himself might, although Uxko like gave different worlds for people and then each animal species that or that he identified had its own world. But for Samuel Butler, the microbes, so these qualities bubble up in the galaxy of, um, in the keyhole galaxy, like that Hubble took, there, there's like this thing that's light years across along, and it looks like the back of a middle finger. And that's just the type of human self-centered thinking, you know, that leads to the Bible, which is still embedded in like, you know, the, the, the hidden philosophy of science, etc. We have to be careful when we think we're kind of being antiseptically going from the big to the small, that we're not carrying all sorts of like prejudices with us and that we have a sort of artificial objectivity. And then it, it might take away from more from other questions, questions of perspectives in general. Like I, after reading your book, I was like, you know, it just really hit me like how when you look off down a road, the perspective, like the, 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 the train tracks go into a dot. I mean, that's crazy. It's amazing. It's like, I don't, you can't, if you think more, you think about it, the more perplexing it is, but it allows you to like take that obviously wrong datum that's used in perspective and paintings and then move in the real world. So we're doing all sorts of tricks yeah, yeah. like that all the time. Right. Science essentially takes that change in perspective, which usually we would just notice kind of if, you know, even if we spent time noticing it, it just looks like things just kind of merge together. It's amazing to me that science then takes that point of merger uh-huh. and changes the resolution. Right. Right. So the, the kind of switch that I think produces the question about scale that is the heart of this book mm-hmm. is, you know, one of the, the examples I like to point to is the fact that cell theory, which is, you know, th- this mm-hmm. is this is the scale at which much of your work is working, right? Uh, with Lynn Margulis. And the planetary with Gaia too. Yeah. And the planetary, right? The one that that completely blows my mind is that it took us until about the 1830s or 40s before we put together uh, cell theory, right? right? It's just a kind of interesting fact about the history of science that even though, you know, Hooke had had, you know, seen cells a, a long time before, it took a long time for it to click that these were not just very small animals, right? They were called animacules before then, right? Right. But but like actually what your body was made of and that they're semi-autonomous creatures that have their own sort of organelles, right? Like it's not just very Mm -hmm. small things Mm -hmm. that are part of the same phenomenal realm. They're just too small for you to see, Mm -hmm. right? But you full on revise your entire field of objects. And it's it's when you go to to Gaia and and I really love that phrase from uh, Lynn's – it's it's Gaia is just symbiogenesis seen from space. It's just it's cellular evolution at the scale of the planet. Because what those are doing is they're showing that at that horizon of human perception, and and I think that's that's really what you're talking about when you talk about the kind of limit where the mm-hmm. railroad kind of merges into mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Right, that's the limit at which our eyes are able to parse reality. They're not able mm-hmm. to see anything of more detail mm-hmm. or really of, of larger scope. Mm-hmm. And so what's astonishing about what science has done is that it then says, okay, well, no, we're going to develop methods for tracing what kind of differences are discernible at the limits or beyond the limits at which the, the normal human apparatus is able to produce it. And on the other side of that, they define objects. It doesn't mean that they're not actually describing things, right? I'm definitely not one of those scholars who would say, like, scientists have created cells by any means, right? (laughs) But they are discerning objects at a scale at which humans don't usually experience. There's a kind of threshold there. And so Mm. the the idea of threshold is absolutely central to what I'm talking about here. Because that threshold is the thing that both puts us in contact with it and cuts us off from these scalar objects. You don't experience DNA directly. But then at the same time, that is what you're experiencing when you're sick or when you're living. Except that, okay, I would just say that there is a, there is sort of like a, um, a, a jump to like hyper-realism with the idea of scale. Because, I mean, the, in the Middle Ages, weren't people experiencing the miasmas that they thought were causing the diseases or seeing the mice arise in the rags and, and experiencing the spontaneous generation. So I would say in some sense, what you're calling scale that has this kind of discrete in it. And, you know, you, you've made like a, a sort of separation between various scales, which I would say arguably are pretty influenced by the history of science. 
Yeah, so we can talk a little bit more about like why I would distinguish those those different scales. But let's back up because I want to respond to some of what you said before. This question of anthropocentrism is really important. And I should say, Dorian, that you, like your work was really the, my first introduction to what is often among academics now called posthumanism. Like if I had to gloss posthumanism, I would say it's the the set of philosophies that are pushing at our notion of the human and the central centrality of the human, including these binaries that we place between ourselves and the rest of reality, human, animal, self, and other, these kind of binaries. I was thinking a lot about how the descriptions of science have revised the way in which we're able to conceptualize what we are. Right. And the cellular example was really the first one that I had. And then the second one I had was was nanotechnology. So in relation to this question of anthropocentrism, our definition of cells, our, our understanding of cells is not disconnected from our inquiry into them. Right. So we've all been trying to experiment with how to say something about something like cells while not centering ourselves, like not making it about us but also accounting for the fact that our understanding of cells is also partially about us, right? And so this conversation about anthropocentrism, which I think, you know, you've been engaging with for decades. I mean, I, I'm astonished going back to read Microcosmos, how central that was to the task that you and Lynn were taking up, that it's really about taking the stuff that, you know, Carl Sagan was doing with Cosmos, putting it in the microbial and really trying to dis, like show us how that displaces our ideas of ourselves. I would like to think that what I'm doing here in scale theory is more of that same task while still understanding then how have we thrown ourselves into this transformation where in a certain sense, I like to think of it as science has deconstructed us. But of course, we're also doing the science. I always have found your statements about the microbe to be incredible mystical statements that are clarifying for some of what Carl Sagan is sometimes more or less explicitly doing. Maybe you would know better than I about like all of these rhetorical techniques he's using to kind of think about the broadness of reality. But it's so much more directly about like, wait a second, I am not what I thought I was. It's really important then for us to understand what transformation in our perspectives that has has uh, occurred for us to start to see something like climate change, right? Which is a beautiful scalar idea, right? Because it's connecting one scalar object, carbon, with another scalar object, climate change. And we're somehow caught in the middle. But by we're somehow caught in the middle, I just mean our normal experience, right? Like the way you experience, there is some relationship between those objects at these different scales and your usual experience, which by the way, your body is designed to experience the world at this scale. I cite Simon Levin's somewhat famous speech on, uh, you know, among ecologists on scale and kind of mess with it a little bit because, because he notes that every organism has a particular scale at which it experiences the world. This brings us back to your micro umwelt question. The human body has produced an umwelt that among many other things, and there's many other things that the human body does to filter reality, right? Like when we can talk about what the eyes do to see things and, you know, you can only hear certain frequencies, et cetera, et cetera, right? So like, I'm not saying scale is the only one, but it is a really important metric for understanding how your body has pieced together experience at a particular level that makes certain differences matter. If you got feedback from every single one of your cells, that mm -hmm. would be insane. Mm -hmm. It would just literally be too ex too much experience. Mm -hmm. It'd be like the, going on the internet as for us. Yeah, oh, exactly, right? <laughs> I mean, this is what this is part of what we're all experiencing as little humans. Yeah, it's a scalar morass right now as far as the, the global, globality of technology. Yeah. Like there's too much information. A vast majority of that information is actually irrelevant to us, and yet everybody's trying to make it feel like it's relevant to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that makes me think of Samuel Butler, who I find fascinating, the guy who wrote um, Air One and The Way of All Flesh, but also four books on evolution at his own expense, and whom Gregory Bateson called uh, Darwin's most able critic. And he was really excited when he got the um, origin of species when he was in New Zealand. But then he, he, he kind of diverged because he looked back at the sources that were mentioned in early editions of the Origin of Species on Darwin's illustrious predecessors. And he saw that he had sort of like sanitized and mechanized the theories of the um, older evolutionists by making it all about natural selection when before they had this room um, like Lamarck and Buffon and even his own uh, grandfather Erasmus Darwin 
had this feeling of that these organisms can do things on their own. You know, they can they can make their little decisions. Just like even the most megalomaniac and powerful, um, rich politicians, etc. They're not controlling. <laughs> they're not controlling anything. They might think they are too. You know, by adding like you know coal fly ash, say, into in to airplanes, and maybe trying to either you know cool the planet by darkening it or warm it up and get some more oil out of the poles, but they're insignificantly microscopic within terms of the actions of Earth as a whole, as are most of our ideas about what's happening and how and why they're happening. And so Butler at one point, when I was sitting in, in the library at Smith College, reading this uh, Everything I Could by him, because they had a complete Shrewsbury edition of his works, and he's got a lot of notebooks, and this I think was in one of those, where, or maybe it was one of his evolution books, where he says, we don't remember when first we grew an eye. So if you put yourself scalarly in colonial microbes position and like imagine that they have their own little desires, their own little purposes, and as he says, their own little toolkits, which amount to kind of nanotechnology, that those things through, not necessarily through anything eerily mystical, but maybe just thermodynamic flow patterns, little choices made, become embedded over vast amounts of times into the structures that eventually become something like a body. We don't remember when we first grew an eye. We could say we are growing eyes and technology. But when I look at science and technology, rather than looking at it as like a kind of asymptotic approach to absolute truth, I see it more as developing organs in, the, in you know, a, a human super organism that has all sorts of problems and ideas and out of those some you know will be naturally selected and eventually they'll be second nature instead of you know in the forefront of your consciousness and i think there is something deep in that that idea that was dismissed by thomas huxley and charles darwin and others as being you know mystical but the opposite is even more objectionable to think that only humans have like a true innerness and that only we are capable of like doing things that last. I mean, Gaia, I think I calculated it. If you divide the time and say 2.5 billion or 3.5 uh, billion, the time that civilization at about 10,000 years has been on this planet, human civilization, urban, whatever, all of science, you know, middle ages, everything. 10,000 years goes into 3.5 million, like 350,000 times. So we're just like a fraction of a percent. My mom said, Lynn Margulis, to go back to her, one of her friends told me this after she died, what will be left, you know, of humans in the fossil record, a thin layer of iron from the cars. So that doesn't get a little bit more de-anthropocentrist than that, and that may well be the case. And we can't even accept the possibility of it because it's so demeaning. We would rather name an entire geological epoch after ourselves, the Anthropocene, when, as I argued in that Arts of Living on a Damaged uh, Planet by Singh et al. in my intro to the, I think it was a monster section, you know, they, if we're going to give ourselves, we have to give a uh, name and age after the cyanobacteria because they're the ones who created the oxygen atmosphere that we're breathing, which whose scattering of which light turns the atmosphere blue, which created the ozone layer and which energizes the entire surface of the planet. And because of the, the maintenance of or, uh, chemicals that react with oxygen to continuously uh, put back into Earth's atmosphere would make us visible to extraterrestrials who had spectroscopic um, equipment and science at our level. So, you know, that's they would tell the Earth was alive, not so much by humans. And also just a, a note, and this is like a little happy horse of mine, you know, I think that the, the, the monolithic mantra and total acceptance as absolute consensus of carbon dioxide can be distracting from the fact that, you know, there's experiments that show that particulate pollution, because re which whose residence time in the atmosphere is much lower and they're bigger particles in terms of scale, because um, although they cool the earth in the daytime, they also re-radiate solar and um, the Earth's radiation at night. For example, over at Mount St. Helens, the fumes that um, came out, they made it cooler in the daytime, but it was more than hotter than it usually was and then it cooled at night. So the effect of the gasoline additives, the coal fly ash, and other forms of particulate pollution from um, bombs, war, um, industry in general, may be um, a more direct cause of global warming. Unfortunately, because of the same 
problem. We're talking about the gigantism of the structures that are being made by the tiny individuals that are humans are more crowded, more scientized, more automated automated science, which does sort of takes the science out of science planet, those are things that is, are beginning to escape our attention that are important because just like um, at the individual level, things that escape public consciousness can come back to haunt you if you don't realize them, although they might work in the short term. For example, we should be worried about climate change. Now, it might be a good thing, but what if we're looking at the wrong thing? Um, I read this little book about Philip K. Dick, and he gives this example by Henri Bergson. A woman who's walking towards an old-fashioned elevator, and um, there's no elevator in the shaft. She doesn't realize that. She's about to step to her death into the elevator, but somebody throws her to the ground just in time, and she and she opens her eyes wide. There's nobody there. It was a hallucination. That, I think, is a good metaphor for a lot of times what happens with our ideations, both academically and in everyday life and at the perceptual level. We have these little little things that work. It doesn't mean that they're true. You know, it's kind of a Nietzschean view. So many of the arguments that you were just making and the points you were just making rely on scalar objects and changes in scale. I would define a scalar object as an object that we'll only become aware of when we change scales significantly. And so Carl Sagan talks about this a little bit uh, when he talks mm-hmm. about scalar numbers. In the, it's in the Billions and Billions book, right? Which is one of the last things that... Yeah, it was post-mortem, actually. I, didn't, I haven't read it. Well, oh. I, read, I read the part where he supposedly called his children to his bedside one by one, which might have been true, but I didn't, I, none of the other kids were there when I was visiting him. I think that Annie Dreen sort of took some liberties there. The cyanobacteria one is very interesting for the that you're already doing two different scales, right? You're invoking that scalar object because cyanobacteria are only really able to be defined at the micrometer, but then you're observing their effects at a geological scale, okay, in mm-hmm. order to make a point about mm-hmm. both the significances of evolution, mm-hmm. the uh, true impacts mm-hmm. on the the way in which we tell the story about the mm-hmm. planet, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then you did the same, you, I mean, you used the phrase interestingly microscopic. You talked about like the extent of time, right? You start talking about 10,000 years and we just don't live at that scale. We don't. I like, do. I like that scale. <laughs> well, okay. sure. Okay. Because we have, we have started to teach ourselves to mm-hmm. do that. Ultimately, for most of us, for the most part, it doesn't actually matter if I understand the Krebs cycle, right? Which is the cycle that mitochondria use to cycle ADP through and make energy, right? Even though it's like one of the most important processes to sustain my body. Scale theory is less about that kind of science literacy and more interested in like taking the basic facts, as you're saying cyanobacteria have this effect, right? Like one of the things that Lynn Margulis was infamous for and then kind of vindicated, if I'm narrating it correctly, is the idea that mitochondria were essentially invasive species, right? Um, well, no, it's alpha proteobacteria is their closest genetically, but they could have been, you know, eaten. I mean, the thing is, once the cyanobacteria oxidize, ruining the planet worse than we will ever do, but also making the fresh air we breathe, that all of the previous life forms that were were anaerobic and not able to survive to free oxygen, which is so reactive, had to either go into the muds or in some cases become symbiotic. And so the, the bigger cells that the ancestors of the mitochondria came into were probably archaea and they were probably poisoned by oxygen. But with the, with the mitochondria that were respiring bacteria, they could survive the oxygen by that partnership. So that would be a, a thumbnail of the origin of um, mitochondria from respiring bacteria, you know, like two and a half, two billion years ago. The interesting thing to me is that then how you rally that to then try to to, yeah. to kind of hack at, decenter, confuse, rewrite, whatever. Well, our that's because you're you're a rhetorician, and I was like having to do science. <laughs> I I started off in comp lit. I went to one year in art school. I was like, there's nothing more boring than science writing. I said sometimes I jokingly explain myself as uh, an artist stuck in the body of a science writer, you know, because I think that, and I also have a very deep interest in philosophies. And also, you know, I have to personally grow up with people scientizing me in in various ways. And and now you see that at the global scale, you know, which is a self-parody. 
it's the science, you know, you got to believe it. No, that's exactly what you don't have to do with science. And that's what one thing that despite it being subjected to the superiority of science on a kind of hierarchical epistemological scale socially, but at least that kind of doubt, leaving aside Anglo-American philosophy, analytical philosophy, is still alive in philosophy where, you know, you you have the right to, to put things under erasure and not to make and not to have to make truth claims, let alone publish papers on what you perceive to be the truth. So I think there's a kind of a um, an immunization to the cockiness of science in a technocratic society such as the one that we're living in by the survival of certain forms of philosophy and inquiry that are not immediately put in, through a filter of right and wrong. So you had to survive that is what you're saying. I had to survive my my father not wanting to be interrupted and deliver you know beta tests of cosmos, which was fascinating. I mean, I was, I was when I was eleven or twelve. He he, a lot of things he would later say on TV. He would say to me personally, and uh, and meanwhile, my mother and her second husband, uh, Tian Margulis, she would speak so fast, and you could don't forget a word in edgeways. Um, in either case, that I once joked um, using a line from a Theodore Sturgeon. Um, story that I would copy here and say the hyperkinetic symbiotic extractions with the microtubulistic variations, you know, to try to get the t- <laughs> get the tenor of the speed of like the scientific verbiage that was going on. So, but I think, yeah, but that doesn't mean that the perspectival shifts you're talking about um, didn't come from my mother. In a certain sense, they did. But I think the whole the, the microcosmos was an effort to see evolution from which is it seems logical, uh, um, a, a microbial perspective. And I think that in a lot of space science and a lot of, you know, astrobiology, what formerly known as exobiology, and in a lot of scientific discourses and technocratic scientific discourses with regard to health and everything, there is still like this deep shadow of this like anthropomorphic God man as God, you know, God, we got rid of God and right, man right. Rand took his place. To me, it's artistically and philosophically fulfilling to look at it from these ways that take us down a few notches, which really, I think is where we're going. I don't even think it's like a scalar illusion. I think like the opposite is a scalar illusion, the idea that we must be superior. I mean, it's, it seems like a normal thing for thermodynamic systems that are trying to find energy and feed themselves and deal with the threats around them, you want, you're want you going to have a tendency towards selfishness. And humans have it in spades. And it may be contributing to their premature demise. It might be useful then to go back to something you said earlier about what humans do then. Because we experience the world at a certain scale, we have what I and some other people as well have called a scalism, a kind of preference for our scale. And everything has to be rewritten back at our scale. I distinguish between three different definitions of scale in the book. The first I call Gulliver's scaling. You take an object that you presuppose and you make it really big or you make it really small. But the interesting thing about that, like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids or any of these kind of narratives, you know, the kind of fantastic voyage into the body, is that the object remains the same despite going to a scale at which it just literally doesn't exist. And in fact, biology has discovered this many times over that, you know, there are limits at which biology, life, seems to have to, uh, in order to get bigger or smaller, has to compound itself to do that. So I distinguish Gulliver's scale because there's this way in which we already assume that objects pre-exist and that we, when we're talking about scale, we're just talking about things getting bigger or smaller. And that's completely ignoring these kind of thresholds. And so I've set that to the side as kind of Gulliver scaling as a kind of imaginary that doesn't even fit the things that we started to describe as scale. The other one, though, is is cartographic scaling. And part of the reason that I distinguish that is because that's primarily about representations. The image is actually the map. That is actually one of the, the practical ways in which scale as a kind of metric enters, right? Because you need to know the relationship between the map and the territory that you're walking around, cruising towards on your ship. But one of the things that's, that I think is problematic about conflating what I'm trying to talk about here with cartographic scaling is that cartography is really all about people and where they want to go mm-hmm. and how they want to get there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's all sorts of things we add into maps and sort of filter to make them work for us that it seems like really important that we separate out that process of representation from the larger apparatus of scale, whereby we're talking not about the representation but the observation. So I'm making a distinction here between scale in representation and scale in observation. 
because the representation makes it nicely not about not about us even as it is about us again right mm-hmm. like it's like oh you know we're talking about this you know the inner life of the cell or whatever as a representation uh that again lets me off the hook in a certain way mm-hmm. as opposed to if i sit here and say what i am observing is a representation we're not ignoring the fact that it is Right. But but I'm noting that it's a representation that's representing to me a whole different level of observation of what I am about what's about what cells are. Sometimes it's not just about the representation, Mm -hmm. but about the way in which the representation does something Mm -hmm. to you. Part of what scale has done is permit us to continue to prefer certain things about our scale to insert them, right? Like if you think about the, the easiest example of this is Google Earth, right? Like Google Earth is actually a really interesting scalar perception that we can have. It's like, here is the object Earth, but I'm only interested in it because I want to find places. If you compare that, for instance, as I do some in the book with some of the things that astronauts say as they're circling the planet, you know, there's the famous speech by Rusty Schweikart that we often just refer to as the no frames, no borders speech. Oh, it turns out you can't see nations up at the, right. plan- uh, you know, at the level of the planet. One of the terms that I, I want people to take out of this book is this idea of scalar synecdoche. I remember that word, that from the book, but I don't, I still don't know what's meant by it. I can't even pronounce synecdoche. Synecdoche. There was a movie named that. Synecdoche, right? Yeah. <laughs> so synecdoche is the kind of metaphorical structure in which you let a part fill in for the whole. Right. Right. So the quintessential example for this is like the White House comes to fill in for our whole structure of government. You realize that we already do this synecdochal thing with all of our way of thinking about power. We let the president fill in for the entirety of all of the people. And then you can go one more step than that if you add a kind of the ecological question in there and say, well, geez, aren't we even letting humans fill in for all of the animals within these artificial boundaries? One of the things that scale does in relation to to this question of scalism is it lets us put pressure on certain things like what I'm calling here the scalar synecdoche, in which we fill in certain things for the entirety of whatever. I don't really think about most of the conversations we have that are kind of laced with science, perhaps is a good way to say it, as really being science communication, right? Like a bulk of it happens when you're like, wait a second, like, what is the ancestry of my dog? I'm going to go get a DNA test, right? Like you've already bought into a kind of scalar apparatus and a mode of understanding what a, what a dog's ancestry is. The scalar synecdoche, again, it's just one of what ultimately could be many of these kind of assumptions that we make about scale, that then a more careful accounting of scale helps us see how we're rewriting and assuming certain things about the world that does bear relationship to science. And science will help us understand it to some extent. But we also need to translate it out of that. I think you, you, you said it was like a sanitized, you're talking about Butler, talking about it as a kind of sanitized version of descriptions. And I'm trying to essentially desanitize those scientific descriptions by pointing to the fact that they actually do transform your way of understanding reality. And so we have to pay attention to that. Transforming your understanding of reality, I think is a good segue into um, your relationship, which I think is very interesting. And I know you studied Aurobindo and know a lot about mysticism that is not ultimately necessarily mysticism because it might be showing you the way things really are to a certain extent, to sort of paraphrase Aldous Huxley. That does interest me a lot. And I do think that, you know, for the band, The Doors, you know, they took it from Aldous Huxley's book, Doors of Perception, in which he called consciousness a kind of funnel that's blocking out a lot of things. That's a guy who was injected by his wife on his deathbed with a with LSD, and so he might have felt that he merged with the infinite rather than died, whatever that's usually like. And and he took the phrase for his book from William Blake, when the doors of perception are cleansed, things will be seen as they really are infinite, which that's something that I think we could we could talk about too in terms of mysticism and psychedelics. But I'll just give two examples, and one isn't very psychedelic, but they both fit into that category of my own sort of numinous experiences. So that I think do show interesting, and they aren't the only ones, but scalar sort of epiphanies, you know, 
where you, you feel under the influence of some drug that your entire frame of reference has changed. So one, just very briefly, was in Toronto. I had never tried salvia, which is something you smoke. It's a very short-acting, psychoactive substance that's very strong, and it gives people softened like bodily changes. It's kind of like a Alice in Wonderland drug, I think it's been called. But um, one minute I was sitting cross-legged on the floor with like some incense at somebody's house in Toronto, and I had a shot of some hard liquor. And this is a, a guy with, uh, you know, he had, there was some, it was a pretty sparse apartment. He had, he had a, a wife or a girlfriend and a daughter. They weren't there. And this was after I gave, <laughs> I gave a talk, but I inhaled that stuff. And then for the next, what seemed like an eternity, I was only aware of geometric shapes. I had no frame of reference at all. I didn't even know who I was. I felt as if I... I, I put I in quotes because there there was no sense of self in the same way. Say an I, an E-Y-E would be better, experiencing these box-like shapes, different colors maybe in an arrangement that seemed static, and, and like some kind of platonic thing. And I think I might have been like, you know, at, at, on, on a quote-unquote real level being like um, transforming some of the shapes of the pictures on the walls and the furniture and the and the rectilinearity of the room into these eternal shapes in this experience. And then it's a very it's short acting. And so then all of a sudden I felt as if like from the deepest reaches of space there was like this swirling activity that came back to me. And then it was a geometric um, coming to and I realized that there was somebody else in front of me. And when I realized it, it that's what it took for me to realize that I was human again. And then I came back at the time and space as we know it. And then the one that isn't psychedelic, but I would put in the same sort of numinous experiences is, um, and it, I, it's actually uh, written up by Evan Thompson in his, in his Mind and Life book, which talks about like the connections of neuroscience and Eastern philosophy, phenomenology and stuff like that. Um, we had been in a Lindisfarne conference. I was actually with Natasha Myers at the time, the, the rendering molecular person. And um, we were in New Mexico. I had been living in Toronto, and I was jet-lagged. So I had also taken that night porcine melatonin, melatonin derived from the pineal gland of a pig, the cheapest stuff you could get like, over there to try to like moderate my jet lag. And most importantly, perhaps I had seen the day before a lecture by the same Evan Thompson talking about the history and the art and techniques of lucid dreaming. That morning, I, I, I had a lucid dream. What, it what started off as a non-lucid dream where my mother was in a bus. I was waving goodbye to her. There was like a, I was getting my uh, gas uh, filled at a tank. I put in my card. I, was trying to, I, was, I felt inside my pocket, and inside the, the corner of my jeans pocket, there was a little bit of swag, you know, <laughs> cheap marijuana, but this was all in a dream, right? And then I realized I was dreaming as the bus like pulled out and stuff. And I looked up like where you would look in your own pineal. And I'd also been actually uh, doing Kundalini, I should mention was another factor where there were some exercises with the pineal gland. But in my sleep state, realizing I'm dreaming, I look up and instead of flying, as you know, you probably had a few flying dreams. I think most people have, and they're pretty incredible. But instead of flying, knowing that I was dreaming, I saw the sky. And I, what I saw was an eidetic image of the blue sky with white clouds in the daytime and completely overlapped and without any blocking of it, night sky. It, glittering stars at the same time. And so it was a, it was quite an incredible experience. And I would like to think that that was a superposition, you know, some quantum superposition or seeing both sides of the earth at a scale that we never have, you know? So those are just two of my own personal experiences. But I think there's many, many kind of, of psychedelic experiences that seem to be playing a trick with scale, not necessarily in terms of hallucination and in terms of, of William Blake, when he says, when the doors of perception are cleansed, you might see things as they are. It's less finite than our usual view of the earth. Thank you for sharing all those experiences. For listeners who want the like careful yet experiential accounting for this, I would recommend reading Rich, Richard Doyle's Darwin's Pharmacy. He was uh, a huge influence on me, and I know that you also write about him uh, in Cosmic Apprentice. There's a very, very great 
and clear accounting in there of the history of this term psychedelic and its relationship to the problem of my manifestation as it emerges in kind of thinking about evolution. So that's just the first sort of note for people listening to this. The other sort of point of, of context that's not personal is that the experience that I talk about in scale theory is Stuart Brand's description of when he first thought to do the whole earth campaign. And he, he says he was sitting on his apartment. I think it was like four, four or five stories up tripping on LSD and then he says he glimpses the curvature of the earth. He immediately thinks of Buckminster Fuller talking about the difficulty of conceptualizing ourselves being on a planet. And he says, oh, we need an image of Earth from space from that, right? No, in our current and sort of, you know, for the last couple of decades, rhetorical context for thinking about psychedelics, it's so easy. And I've talked about this with students all the time, right? You just, they just kind of laugh you and eye roll like it makes people uncomfortable. There's something really important there about the the manifestation of a different perspective, right? So if psychedelic literally means my manifestation, right, to manifest mind in some way, it makes sense that we would need some kind of modification of our perception, of our way of experiencing reality in order to sort of glimpse these differences in scale on the one hand. But then we can flip that and say in situations in which one experiences these modifications in perception and experience. Sometimes it suddenly makes sense to describe things in terms of scale. We can take this back to the comment you made earlier about science sanitizing. If we were to sit down with the scientific descriptions, I think you're doing in so much of your work, suddenly it can, if you really just like actually contemplate, dwell with, right, to use a nice Heidegger term perhaps, what is being described. And you don't really know what that is, but let's just experiment with like, oh, here are cells. Here are ecological vectors. I think that Carl Sagan finds himself in mystical territory in ways that I don't know that he was actually comfortable with. When he says things like, we are star stuff and we long to return. What is that doing to your relationship to reality? Well, it's manifesting a different experience of the world that's taking you at these different scales and trying to get you to experience yourself according to those changes. Is that psychedelic? In the process of thinking about scale very carefully and doing this, when I wrote scale theory initially, before I I would write, I would sit for 45 minutes and meditate. And then I would sit down and it would feel like a continuous part of the meditation. Mm. It would put me in the state of mind in which I wasn't just thinking about Mm -hmm, cells, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. I was observing that this description was rewriting my experience, right? And that just requires a kind of slowing down and uh, really attending to like, wait a second, you just described me in terms of thermodynamic dispersal. It feels trippy. And I would have moments where I'd be walking through the kitchen and I would feel myself as the cosmos walking through itself, this is like one piece of the universe walking around itself going, ooh, look, over here is a pan. And over here, some food to put in this pan. And then I would have these like scale switches where it felt overlaid, very similar to what you were just talking about there in terms of like kind of cubist imagery. What if I think of this, and here's, here's Dorian Sagan showing up in my brain, you know, circa 2013 <laughs> as I'm cooking some dinner. The aggregate of cells is producing some nutrients because the cells need some some nutrients. And then, you know, then Richard Dawkins shows up and is like, it's the gene, you know, and then you get the selfish gene discourse come in overlaid on top of each other. And so I've articulated that now in the more academic sense in the book as scientists find themselves entering the discursive terrain of mysticism when somebody like Carl Sagan says, the cosmos is all that was, all that is, and all that ever will be. It's like, what are you like? Whoa, all of it, all of it. You mean all like, like, right? Like including the ones we haven't discovered yet because they're like too big or too small. Or we haven't quite figured out how to make them appear to us as relevant differences. Like, I don't think it's just scale that does this. I think there's a lot of different ways that we could talk about science doing this problem, but scale certainly is brought into view for me, specific ways in which science has sanitized its descriptions. Once I started paying attention to this, I realized from looking at the scalar terminology, where did, for instance, the term hierarchy come from? And it turns out that in almost every case, there is some relationship to a mystical articulation first. From what I understand, Pseudo-Dionysius, who is a crucial figure in the history of Christian mysticism, was probably the person who coined the term hierarchy, not to talk about political structures, 
but to talk about the layering of existence and the attempt to get to the all. I kept finding these kind of mystical articulations. So first of all, I then say, okay, look, let's just define mysticism in a more rigorous way as the attempt to induce and make sense of experiences beyond the human bounds, especially the cosmic perspective. Because for some reason, the cosmic perspective seems to be used more readily than the microcosm. What if mystics in observing these certain people who start to observe their perception and then they realize that beyond themselves, what they think of themselves is this vast reality that's really just two scales. And science has fleshed out all these other scales in between there and when smaller than that and so on. Your human experience is a parsing of this whole reality. The definition of the cosmos there is really mystical. It's actually much clearer if you read Alexander von Humboldt's account of what he's doing in Cosmos, which is the precedent to Carl Sagan's Cosmos. I talk about this in chapter 10. That perspective of the vast totality of existence suddenly gives you a very different perspective on reality. This is territory that seems less comfortably scientific, certainly. But nonetheless, I want to encourage readers to go there because in these changes in scale, how they become transformations of you and not just descriptions that we have of the world. I have this chapter on objects, a chapter on subjects, and a chapter on relations. In each of those, the primary difficulty in us understanding our scalar configuration of objects is that in some way, objects are insubstantial. And then it makes sense in some way to describe everything as one, because on what basis do you distinguish things out? Where do you go when you understand yourself as cells or atoms or parts of an ecology or parts of the sun? You can't leave yourself intact there. That's what allows us to keep that kind of objective ruse is that you don't apply the scale to what you think you are. You're not actually in control. I don't know how the cell is doing that. I don't know how the oxygen got here. That is astonishing as uh, something to attend to. When you try to understand the scientific descriptions, like you say, I made up a cell. Sure, I'll buy that. How does that revise my experience? You end up in kind of mystical territory. And then you flip that and you say, now I'm reading these mystics to try to understand this tradition. It seems like they all over the place articulate these scalar terms. You mentioned my father's pale blue dot thing. Friedrichsley Zepsevic, who co-wrote this paper in Biosystems, where they said you could also have a pale blue dot of the earth in terms of organisms. Like humans are a pale blue dot in terms of where we are in the nexus of life on earth. It has 10 to 30 million species only to include sexually reproducing organisms, the plants the fungi and the animals, which are all basically sexually reproducing organisms. Meanwhile, the, the bacteria and the archaea are trading genes all the time. They don't need to have sex to reproduce, but they trade genes even more than we do. In that frame of reference, and you, look, and you add in time, people are minuscule. They, they disappear. So if you look at the pale blue dot, I think it was taken on Valentine's Day when Voyager turned back and saw the whole Earth as just being this little dot. Nabokov describes somewhere Earth as a pinpoint planet. More recently, the a deep solar system view was taken from Saturn, where um, the glare of the sun was abated by Enceladus, this like water world, a moon of Saturn. And you could um, see Earth in its tiny little arc in a montage that NASA made, which is the moon. You keep on going in that direction, and Earth disappears. It disappears. So there's no more Earth. From a scalar perspective, astronomically, with our ability to see, we don't see the whole place that we are. So that makes me think about infinity and the strange mathematics of infinity and what else we're missing. It also makes me think of Nietzsche's idea of eternal recurrence, that everything that happens will happen eternally. And I think I think he had an experience and that it was a kind of psychedelic experience. So it might have been broke by a seizure or um, some of his, he had a lot of a lot of maladies, but I think it was also scientifically informed because at the time it's like thermodynamic speculations included the idea that, you know, sufficient energy, a closed system would go through all possible states. And so if space, if you look at space as finite, but time is infinite, which he did partly because he argued that if time could have stopped, it would have done so already. So therefore time must be infinite. I think he plugged those sort of Victorian scientific ideas into what was for him an experience. 
our friend Rich Doyle writes, and you quote him in your book, that the persuasiveness of scalar views seems, quote, to hinge on an experience of interconnection as well as an understanding of it. And that's kind of what we're talking about, whether you want to call it mystical or not, whether it's precipitated by psychedelics or not, those things can and do happen. And they're very interesting in terms of scalar. Isn't this the attraction of numinous experiences of revelation and religion, psychedelics, Satori, the conviction that something real has somehow, with apologies to Ursula Le Guin, because she doesn't like that word, somehow, <laughs> it's a word, somehow been revealed. Nietzsche's eyes, when he whispered to Lou Salome, in her, as he reports in her biography of him, the secret, I would say, the experience of the eternal return, standing in Switzerland by Lake Silva Plana by a quote-unquote pyramidal block of stone, as Nietzsche describes it, 6,000 feet above man and time. That's a quote from his description of his experience. And he, you can call it that, but if you're above or outside time or seeing time and on, as sometimes mystics uh, describe it, can we even call that an inexperience? He tended to call it his thought of thoughts and his heaviest burden, in part because it suggested that you would have to will everything that happens, knowing that it would happen again, no matter how horrible it was, and part of the structure of like a causally closed universe. I can't help but think that such an experience of the sublime, kind of, I might say, the numinous, is also a matter of scale. The one of the idios, you know, the same root of the word idiosyncratic and idiot, but it means private, and it was used by uh, Heraclitus. He divided the idios cosmos is your private world, like the one you enter the dream. The 40% of our lives we spend dreaming, and then the cosmos koinos, like a coin, it circulates. That's what we're doing right now. We we circulate and we mix our ideas, and they're different in the sense that you know one is more private. And in this these numinous experiences, there seems to be like a, a merger of the two, and the person becomes into nothing, and also and possibly at the same time everything. You know, when I thought about this and came across these ideas of infinity and how people thought about it, one of the things I, I came across is the amusing story that the mafia boss who interviewed Meyer Lansky, who was a big accountant for the mafia, thought one divided by infinity is zero. And he said, no, one divided by infinity is infinity. Apparently, the mafia liked the math and put dollar signs in their eyes, dollar signs that manifested as cold, hard cash. Technically, in math, it's called undefined. Infinity is not a number. It just goes on and on, so you can't do the math. One divided by infinity might be nothing, but then what happened to the one? The Italian mathematician Luigi Franciape wrestled with this problem, opting, I think, for the answer that one divided by infinity is everything, or perhaps everything and nothing. This would seem to mirror the experience of the lover before his beloved, the scientist before nature, the artist lost in her thought. If infinity exists, perhaps in time, as Nietzsche thought, because it would have already stopped if it could have, although space could still be closed, it might be another example, a kind of a philosophical, psychedelic experience with ethical implications. He called it the thought of thoughts that would divide the history of humans in two. But I, I feel like I have experience, again, in quotes, because <laughs> being outside time is not exactly an experience. And, and it, I, I do think that, um, you know, like when you're talking about the set of crypto mysticism of Carl Sagan, my father, it is a sense of at the one hand, it's very egotistic and narcissistic. He's a spokesman on TV with AIDS going out into space that might reach some extraterrestrial ears or appropriate other organs. At the other time, the message is that I am being swamped. I'm swallowed into this giant, very old, if not timeless entity. And that's who I am. And that's who you, the viewers, are. The common thread there is that you already become something else, right? And in fact, it opens questions about who you are to begin with. This is haunting all of our discourse about scale, all of the objects that we talk about at different scales. Like that's always sort of lurking in the background. How do we get to these objects to begin with? Who are you when you get to these objects? Who's left to feel insignificant? Who's left to separate out you from the rest of the cosmos? And that's where I find it actually really useful to keep the whole scalar spectrum in view and to experiment with it to see what this layered redescription has actually done for us. You know, we want to leap to like, what are you saying that like the cosmos is actually like a human body or something? 
Let's just pause before that and just notice that the same shift in scale has happened in both instances. So the traditions of contemplation become really important there for thinking about how do we actually sit with those changes in perspective long enough so that we actually they actually do something to us. Well, uh, hopefully your book can act as a, a pharmacon, one of those, uh, like I, I call it in Cosmic Apprentice, writing it being a, a mind-altering drug. I hope people can get safely high. <laughs> well, that's the hope here, that it's not just an intellectual exercise. The root of theory is about a mode seeing, of seeing, yeah. that I don't spend a lot of time talking about specific examples because I want any reader to understand whatever they study in relation to what these transformations of scale has already done for. <laughs> Thanks, Dorian. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, yeah, I mean, so we should just have a conversation then. Yeah, take out uh, the word conversation. That word's way overused. Everybody wants oh, to have a conversation. Sorry. <laughs> well, geez, okay. <laughs> Okay, we're off to a good start. It can only go up. It can only go uphill unless you have a negative connotation for uphill, downhill from here.